In uh, just a moment, I'm going to continue the reading that was started earlier from Romans chapter 6. And as always, you're welcome to follow along with me uh, in your Bibles or your bulletins, whichever you find to be uh, more convenient. I will have occasion in the sermon to make reference to some things in the bulletins, but in terms of preaching, I'm mostly going to be in uh, Romans chapter 6. So either one. Uh, We are coming now to the final two sermons in this series that we've been doing for the summer, uh, Flesh and Bones, A Biblical Theology of the Body. We began with three sermons that looked on uh, how the Bible teaches that we were created in the image of God. Very good. The next two sermons considered the impact of the fall on our bodies in particular. We looked at all sorts of impacts of that, but it was summarized by the phrase dust to dust, that we were created from the dust and because of the fall to dust we shall return. And then in the last two sermons, we considered the redemption of the body and in particular, the fact that the redemption of our bodies is not in fact done by us, but it is done by, accomplished by, the body of another, our embodied Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our redemption is in him. And now with these last two sermons, what we're doing is we're looking at how that redemption that he accomplished in his body from his birth incarnate, or well, conception, birth incarnation, uh, on through his being seated at the right hand of the Father. How does that get applied to us? Uh, and we're asking a question, how does it get to applied to us in the now? What does that mean now for us? Uh, that we've been redeemed in Christ, and what does that mean uh, in the future as well? So this week, we're looking at our bodies in sanctification, and next week, we're looking at our bodies in glory. In Christ, here is a good place for us to start. We have been, we are being, we will be remade, recast into the image and the likeness of God. That is how we were created. That is where we are heading as well. All right, here then, this portion of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Romans 6 is a very rich passage. We will not mine all of the gold out of this passage today, uh, but we will consider it as best we can. Beginning at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Great God in heaven, here we are once again as your people before your word looking to be instructed by your spirit. We need you, Lord. We need you to apply these things to us. We need you to help us and to enable us to lay hold of them, uh, to grasp them in our minds, let them settle in our hearts, and to let them outwork their way through our members in this world. Jesus, be with us. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, I will be honest with you. Uh, I will not try to hide it from you. We have some heavy lifting in front of us uh, in this sermon. Whenever, whenever you go to Romans and Romans 6, I think in particular, you, you've got some weight that you're going to be carrying around for a little bit. I won't pretend otherwise. But I will say this, that while we're going to be digging in and while we're going to be looking at this and lifting this in a heavy way, what we're trying to deal with today is something extremely practical. We're trying to see how this redemption that has been purchased for us by Christ works out in our bodies. How does that transfer to what we do every day with our bodies? You will recall, and I didn't put it in the bulletin this week, but a couple of times early on, I had uh, 1 Corinthians 6 quoted in the bulletin or printed in the bulletin. And the end of 1 Corinthians 6 is perhaps the verse that could be the motto for this entire series where Paul says, therefore, glorify God with your bodies. There's not a mystery here. There's not, there's not, hmm, I wonder what God wants us to do with our bodies. God wants us to glorify him with our bodies. But as all of us know, and as Paul knew as well, Romans 7, think of that, I'll reference that a couple of times. That's one thing to say, right? It's, it's one thing to say, glorify God with your bodies. It is quite another thing to do that. And, and here in this passage and what we're trying to do today is to say, okay, okay, I know that that is the command. How in the world do I go about that? How do I go about presenting my members uh, in a way that is a way of uh, righteousness and a way that is good? That's our question. I'd like us to begin, though, by making sure that we understand uh, the word sanctification. That's really what we're talking about today is sanctification. Uh, that's a term that may be familiar to many of us and not so much for uh, others. It was found twice in the passage as I read it for us, the section that I read. It was found twice there. In verse 19, it concluded like this, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And then it was found again in verse 22 with this same idea. And you've become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So let's make sure that we understand that. In both of those places, you could translate the word sanctification uh, with the word holiness. You could say that, that we're pursuing holiness, that these things are leading to holiness, holiness which leads to eternal life. To make something holy is to sanctify that thing. Uh, and the process 
of making something holy is sanctification. Okay, we use two different words for it. In English, we use these, these two words that I'm tag, toggling back and forth between now, holiness and sanctification. But nevertheless, it is the same idea, the same word, the same principle that is there. All right, now, again, for the sake of clarity as we begin, look at page eight of your uh, bulletins with me for just a moment. And I want us to pay particular attention right now uh, to the bottom of this. There's a definition of sanctification that's drawn from the larger catechism. And I'm going to read just the, the kind of the first half of it right now uh, and then explain the end of the first half. Uh, what is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time, through the powerful operation of his Spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them. And then here's what it actually is. Okay, that was, that was a clause that came in, but here's, here's what it is. Renewed in their whole man after the image of God. I'm going to stop there for right now. Renewed in their whole man after the image of God. Let me take that apart just a little bit. The whole man. Why does it say the whole Man. What does it mean by the whole man? Well, it means that sanctification is not just a spiritual renewal. It's not just your spirit, your soul, the immaterial part of you that is being renewed in sanctification, but instead the entirety of our being, body and soul, however you want to say that, flesh and bones, the entirety of our being is part of sanctification, is being made holy. And then the next phrase that I want to look at that's in there that follows right after that, renewed in the whole man after the image of God. Now, the significance of that should be clear to us now because we, we know the language of that, right? We, we know the language of that is creational language. And so we're referring to something here that we understand as the original design of God, the original intent of God, that we would be image bearers, that we would be, in fact, as the phrase I've been using, embodied image bearers of God. And as embodied image bearers of God, we are to do what God does. We are to be, in Ephesians 5.1, imitators of God. Image bearers are to be imitators of God. Do what God does and do it the way, if you will. Uh, with, with, if you look at Ephesians 4.24, it says it this way, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this new self that we've got, this new self, and I'll, I'll explain this in a moment, this new self in Christ is also, like Adam and Eve, created after the image of God. Now put that on. Put that on in knowledge and in righteousness is the command that we've got there. So, uh, back to this phrase, renewed in their whole man after the image of God. That's whole man, that's image of God. Now, let's go to the word renewed. Uh, renewed is a great word, a sweet word, a wonderful word. And it obviously has implications to say that this isn't the first time. For example, uh, God didn't create Adam and, and renew him as he created him. He was made the new man, the first man. And so when you say renew, you are in the very definition of the word looking back on something. 
You're looking back on something that was the original, something that has gone away from its original creation, its original intent, and you're looking to bring it back into conformity with that which was the original. So something was lost, and that new thing is being, and here you can use all of these words that are the, uh, the RE words. Uh, so it's, we're being returned, we're being redeemed, we're being reformed, we're being recreated. And though I can't uh, go into this in depth right now, what we're being is renewed in a way that is more perfect, more complete, and more excellent than the original. Better than the original. The original was the start, and it was very good. But that which is perfected will be, that which is sanctified will be even greater and purer than the original because it will be completed and not just at the beginning. So here's a way to conceive of this as a whole. We had in Adam and Eve an original body and soul image of God holiness. That's what belonged to them. That was lost. In the fall, that was lost. It was redeemed in and by the body and soul of Jesus. And now, and this is again according to the confession, and now it is renewed in us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is renewing that inside of us. And that renewal that's going on is sanctification. All right, one more thing uh, before we move on from just the definition here of sanctification. These three statements are true. You are sanctified. You are being sanctified. You will be sanctified. Okay, you got it? All three of those statements are true. And each one of them is important. You are sanctified. You are set apart as holy, definitively set apart as holy because you are in the Holy One. You are marked in Jesus Christ. And so that is why the scriptures can refer to us as saints, right? As those who are made holy, as holy ones, as those who are sanctified. So when Paul writes to the Romans, he writes to those who are called to be saints. When he writes other letters, he says to those who are called to be sanctified or to all of the saints in a particular location. And he's writing there not because of what they look like necessarily in their day-to-day -day life, in the outworking of their day-to-day -day life, but he's writing to them on the basis of who they are in Christ. In Christ, you are not striving to become a saint. You are, in fact, a saint. You are marked out as holy. And as I said last week, Jesus has taken with him into heaven the supreme evidence of your holiness, namely his body. His body before the Father is the evidence of your holiness because you are in him. We are part of his body. So you are sanctified. You are being sanctified as that struggle goes on in our lives now to become that which we are. And then finally, we will be completely sanctified. We will be wholly 
sanctified, and that's what we'll talk about next week when we're talking about uh, glory in particular. That's what sanctification is. So then, if, as long as we understand, okay, that's what we're talking about, that's what this is, where we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God, we now want to dig in and use Romans 6 to dig into the question of how then are we sanctified? How is it that our bodies and souls are made holy or remade holy? How is it that we go from having a body of sin, now we use that as uh, the title of a sermon a couple back, but it comes from our passage today, Romans 6, 6, talking about this body of sin. How do we, instead of being characterized as having a body of sin, how do we move from that to the verse prior to that uh, in, uh, in verse 4, walking in the newness of life? So that's what I want to ask as we come to Romans 6 today. How does that process take place? How are we, in fact, sanctified, made holy once again? Now, at a very basic level, and I won't go into this in depth right now, uh, we can say that the two words at the beginning and at the end of this chapter are an answer to that question. Those two words being grace and at the end, gift. Okay, right? Paul has been talking much about grace in the opening five chapters of this. How do you stand before God in a right way? And the answer is by the grace that is incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. So Paul says so much about grace that he anticipates a little bit of an outlandish question, but nevertheless, one that perhaps we might ask, since sin abounds more uh, pardon me, since grace abounds more where there is sin, should we keep sinning? Should we sin the more that we can have more grace? And of course, his answer to that is by no means. But grace is so great that one might be tempted to take that extrapolation of the idea of grace. And then we come to the end, uh, and he says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you want to ask the question, how, practically speaking, how are you and I sanctified? The answer in a very general sense can be by the grace of God, by the gifting of God. And that's, of course, exactly where the larger catechism started the answer. Sanctification is a work of God's grace. Okay, so far, so good. So whatever else we say about sanctification, it is a gift of, it is a work of the grace of God in our lives. Now, if we want to go a little bit deeper than that, if we want to go a little bit more specific into how this takes place, Paul is, in fact, more concrete here. And, and, and here you can glance at verse 5 with me for a moment. We are sanctified by virtue of the fact that we have been, and I'm going to use this phrase that's used twice here in verse 5, we have been united with him. We've been united with him. That's how we are sanctified. That's how we are made holy again, or renewed in holiness. He can shorten the phrase to being with Christ, or with him, or in him, or in Christ. And in particular, if you want to even go one step, one step further in terms of what this actually means, and again, sanctification. So, grace and gift, how are we sanctified? By God's grace and by God's gift. How are we sanctified? By our union with Christ. But what specifically, 
What specifically in the union with Christ is the means of our sanctification? It is, in fact, spelled out for us. We are united with Christ in his death, in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. Uh, And I'll note at this point that each of those things with which we are united to Christ are particularly bodily things. Bodily things we are united with Christ. Death, burial, and resurrection. Now, united is a rather extraordinary word. Our lives are bound unto and into the life of Christ. Our identity, our very identity, our very sense of self is caught up in, tied up in who Christ is himself. Our identity is rooted in him in the same way or or in an analogous way to the the picture of the oneness that exists in marriage. Uh, And marriage helps us to see, helps us to see the union that exists between Christ and his people, between Christ and his church. That's the idea here of being united. We are united together in one in Christ. Now, Romans 6, of course, says this beautifully in all sorts of ways that we're in process of digging into. But I would like to bring in front of your bulletin, I'd I'd like to bring Galatians 2.20 into this discussion as well, because it's the same idea and said in just a slightly different way that helps us to see the closeness of this union that we're talking about, where Paul writes here, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Listen to the identity language there. That, that identity, I have a new identity. I have an identity that is coming out of the fact that I've been crucified with Jesus Christ. And I'm dead, and he's alive, but he's alive in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, okay, this life, this embodied life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in the Romans 6 language, we're with Christ. We are in Christ. In the Galatians 2 language, Christ lives in us. And the purpose in either case is this, that we have been united body and soul to Christ. We have been united to the body of Jesus Christ. And if we were to go in depth, we're not going to go in depth, but you noticed uh, in verse 3 and 4 that we've got baptism here as a point of reference. So baptism as the sprinkling of water is the sign and seal of the fact that we've been brought into that union. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the bringing into that union of which baptism that we do is a sacrament, illustrating that we've been brought into that union. And though Paul doesn't mention it here, if we took the second sacrament, if we took the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper for us is the evidence as we partake of the body and blood of Christ that that union exists and it is the strengthening of that union as we feast upon Christ himself as he is given to us, we partake of Christ. We are partakers. We are participants individually and collectively of his body. So that uh, 
in the words of the first hymn uh, that we sang, the first line of the first hymn that we sang today, we live and move and have our being in his love. All that we do is in him, is in his love. Now, that should lead to a very particular question, which is to say, how can this be? How can you be talking about our union with the body and soul of Jesus Christ when, in fact, in point of fact, we've never seen Jesus. None of us here has ever touched Jesus himself. And the body of Jesus resides, again, as we saw last week, at the right hand of the Father. He's seated in the right hand of the Father. So none of us has ever, in that sense, been bodily with Jesus. So might, one might say, okay, well, what does that really mean to say that you're united body and soul to Jesus? It is a good question. The answer to that question is actually not found in Romans 6. You don't need to turn there right now. The answer to that question is found in actually Romans chapter 8. The answer to it is by the power of the Spirit of God. You will recall, and I will not draw up verses right now to show this to us, that Jesus presented himself, his body, as the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit rested upon him. The Holy Spirit indwelt him. The Holy Spirit empowered his ministry. And as the New Testament then works it forward, it talks about our body being what? the temple of the Holy Spirit. His body was the temple of the Holy Spirit, and because the Holy Spirit could abide with him, perfect was his body in every way. Now, in him, we collectively as the church, and we individually as people who are in Christ are also the temple of the Holy Spirit, of the same Spirit. It is thus, and I don't know if others have used this phrase, but I'm going to coin it uh, if not. It is thus an embodied spiritual union. The same Spirit which indwelt our Lord Jesus Christ is the same Spirit which indwells us as well. That's how we have a union with Christ, body and soul even though he is presently seated in the heavenly places. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Sometimes, and I've said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it um, because I think it's a a, a truism for for us. Sometimes when we talk about something like this, like this spiritual union, or as I've called it, this embodied spiritual union that we have with Christ, I fear that when we hear that colloquially, Uh, just in the common language that we use, that a mistake that we are going to be tempted to make is to say, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. It's not a real union. It's not an actual union. It's a spiritual union that we have. Kind of like uh, the use of the phrase, and there are other phrases, but kindred spirits. You don't mean actually we're united with someone else as a kindred spirit. You mean that we kind of have the same spirit. We kind of think the same things. We love the same things. We like to do the same things. We're kindred spirits with one another. And so I I think we can minimize the idea of a spiritual union and say, well, it's not actual. You're not actually united to the body of Christ. 
But what I would beg for us to see, and I'm saying us, meaning me as well, is that when we talk about an embodied spiritual union where the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ that inhabits the Lord Jesus Christ is the same Spirit that is in us, I suggest to you that is more real than any other union we could possibly have. It's not less real because it's a spiritual union. It is the quintessence of what real actually means and being united to Christ. So I'd encourage us to think of it that way. And now, if you will, let me just show you this. So I showed it to you there just uh, working through Romans 6. Let me show you how the the, uh, confessional documents capture this same idea as well. Again, on page 8. So on page 8, it asks the question in the shorter catechism, how doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? That's kind of what we're asking right now, right? We talked about the redemption purchased in the last two weeks. How does the Spirit do that? The Spirit applieth to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. How does it take place? The Spirit does it by uniting us to Christ. That's how it takes place. And then, as we've seen with the other parts here, and, and let, me just, let me just highlight them for a second, the first part of the definition now uh, in the larger catechism. It is a work of God's grace, that's what we saw, whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of his Spirit. And what does the Spirit apply in particular? The death and resurrection of Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ. That's what the Spirit is taking in particular and applying in a particular way to our sanctification. So that's that's where I want to go now. What are the implications of this? We know what sanctification is. We know that our sanctification takes place by union with Christ. What are the implications then of this union with Christ in his death and resurrection on our actual sanctification, our actual renewal as embodied image bearers into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I'm sure there are many of these. I'm going to just reduce it today to two for the sake of our purposes. So here you go. Here's an implication. In the first place, here's the implication that I think leaps off the page of Romans chapter 6 as we look at it. The implication first is this. Sin no longer has dominion over you. If you are united with Christ in his death and resurrection by the power of the Spirit generating faith inside of you, sin no longer has dominion over you. Now, if we look at this in our text itself there, we can kind of see the logic of this. Verse 9 says this, We know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death had dominion over the body of Jesus Christ, as strange as that sounds to us, for three days. Sin had a dominion as well, because sin is what causes that death. Now, sin, understand this, sin didn't have a dominion over him because he sinned, but because he took upon himself our sin. So when these, these are parallel statements to say sin has dominion or death has dominion are parallel statements, sequential, sin first, death second. Death had dominion over him, but death no longer has dominion 
over him and the result that death no longer has dominion over him and you are united in him is verse 14, for sin will, no, will have no dominion over you. Because death has no dominion over him and you are united to him, sin has no dominion over you. That's the logic of what we're talking about here because of the dominion of Jesus Christ. Your disobedience to the law of God and the consequent judgment that comes from that no longer is the dominating theme of your life. Your body of sin has been brought to nothing. Did you hear that in verse 6? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, you might hear that statement, the body of sin brought to nothing, and say, oh, okay, well, I guess the bodies don't mean anything anymore. That it's, it's brought to nothing. But no, the, the point that's being made here is that body of sin, which was also a body of death, the sinful flesh in which we dwelt, those terms that we saw in Romans chapter 7, that's been brought to nothing in terms of it being the destiny of you and your body. That would have been the fruit had the king remained the same. Had sin, Satan, death remained the same king in your life, then the result would have been death. But the body of sin no longer has dominion over you. The body of sin has been done away with. It's been brought to nothing. Sin used to be our master, but you are no longer enslaved to it. It has been dethroned by the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, and this is where we have to hear this carefully. I'll come back to it again in just a few moments. It's still hanging around, right? You, you actually experientially don't need me to tell you that sin is still hanging around. It is. That's what Romans 7 is about. But it is not on the throne. And it's not on the throne not because you've kicked it off the throne, but because of the fact that Christ has died to sin for you, and you have died to the body of sin in him. That's why it's no longer on the throne. And Christ rose and ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. And he did what we've talked about, and I guess it was two weeks ago now that we talked about this. He entered into the strong man's house. He entered into the household of death. He disarmed death. He bound death up. And as he rose from the grave, he said, no, 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 I'm plundering your house. I'm taking out of your house, and I'm the first one. I'm the first fruits of all of the others who are going to come as well. And now he reigns, and you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life hidden with Christ in God in the heavenly places by the union that exists by the Spirit. You are definitively not enslaved to sin. Sin does not have dominion over you. Verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 18. 
and having been set free from sin. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, it doesn't have dominion over you anymore. That's the implication on our sanctification of being in union with Christ by the Spirit in his death and resurrection. Now let's look at a second implication that flows from this as well. From our union with Christ on our sanctification is that this union is the basis of and the power for the process of sanctification. This union that we have with Christ is the basis of and the power for the process of sanctification. It would be easy to make a mistake in reading Romans 6. My suspicion is that most of us in this room have made this mistake somewhere along the way. I know I have made this mistake in reading through Romans 6. But it would be easy to read Romans 6 and come to the conclusion, well, we'll never sin again. I guess I'll never sin again. Or I guess that in every battle, every temptation that by sin that I'm confronted with, I will always come out victorious. I will always defeat sin since, how many times did it say it? I've been set free from sin. It doesn't have dominion over me. I'll always be victorious. Or conversely, if I read Romans 6 and then I experience sin in my life, perhaps I think, well, well wait a minute. Then, then who's really in charge of my life? Is, is Satan on the throne of my life when I'm sinning? Or, or what's happening there? But that is to misapply this teaching. We have been, and this is Paul's point, we have been delivered from the kingship, from the reign, from the dominion, from the realm of sin, but it continues to wage war against us. And when we fall, the one on the throne hasn't changed. The one who is on the throne, your throne, before whom you bow, has not changed. The regent is still Jesus Christ on the throne. Uh, John Murray, I think, makes this point in talking about this. If you were to say to a slave, to someone who's under a master, to a slave, don't act like a slave. Well, that doesn't make any sense because you're in fact a slave, and so you're going to act like a slave because that's what you should do. But, and this is what Paul is exhorting here, if you're speaking to someone who was a slave and has been freed from that slavery, and you say to them, don't act like a slave, then that immediately makes sense, right? It's immediately not saying that when you act like a slave, you're going to run back and, and put yourself back into service under your master. It's to say you've still got behaviors in you. You still do stuff that is characteristic of the time when you were a slave because that's kind of worked into your warp and woof of who you are as a person. Paul's point here is the struggle's going on. It's not a change in the regency that takes place every time, but you, because of who you were, are tempted to slip back into old patterns of being enslaved to sins. In Romans 6, Paul is equipping us for the warfare, not declaring an end 
to the struggle. The warfare still exists, and as much as it is a heart struggle, and it is a heart struggle, it is exercised through the body. Paul recognizes the connection of the body here. That's why he goes in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That's where it's exercised. It's exercised out through our bodies. Don't let it reign in your mortal bodies. Let me just just look at one section here at the end, and if you want to look at it with me, you can. Uh, But in the Westminster Confession in section 2, Uh, There it talks about this abiding warfare. There abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part of us, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That's quoting from Romans chapter 8 to affirm the reality of this warfare. Now what I want to do is zoom in for us on verse 13 here in particular. Verse 13 says, do not present your members, you remember what members are, right? Members are the body parts that we have, all of our hands, limbs, etc., our ears, eyes, uh, our intimate parts as well. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Paul's talking physical here. He's talking material language. Material, bodily sanctification is what he's concerned about and how you use the various parts and the various faculties that exist within our bodies. Now, you'll recall that in Romans 7, we saw Paul addressing the law of sin that dwells in our members and his members the law of sin that dwells in his members. Here he's saying that we are not simply to give in to that law of sin that still dwells in our members anymore. We are to fight because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. So don't take the parts of your bodies as instruments, as tools, as weapons, and use them for unrighteousness, but use them for righteousness. Present them that way. On the front of your bulletins, uh, I put Romans 12.1, a verse familiar to us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present it. Take your bodies and do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do with his body? He presented it to his father as a living sacrifice. He offered up his body to his father on our behalf. Now the command comes to us. Be an imitator of God. Be an imitator of Christ. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So you can take that word present, which is used several times here in Romans 6, and see it in the sense of an offering that is offered up, and that's completely appropriate. You can also take it in another sense. You can take it in the sense of present yourselves to the one who is your Lord. Present yourselves to the one who is now your master, who is now your commander, and say, present, sir, at your service. I am present at your service. I present to you my hands, my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my intimate parts, my feet. 
I present to you all of my body as instruments. And, and it would be helpful here to understand that this word instrument, uh, which I guess tool would be the natural way for us to understand instrument. However, the word is primarily used in its various forms as weapon. Okay, that, it, it's a weapon that we're talking about here. So present your instrument, sorry, your members as instruments, as weapons, not of unrighteousness. That's what they used to do. They used to be weapons with a sword that would slash at other people, slash at God around you. Instead, instead, Lord, I present these members to you as weapons for righteousness, to be used, to be engaged in the warfare for that which is righteous and that which is good. Paul wants us to take these members of our body that are so accustomed to serving their master sin and now redeploy them in service to King Jesus. Not by willpower, because that'll never work. That'll never work. How many times have you told yourself, by willpower, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I am going to do this. How, how does that go for you? How does that work for you? Well, it works the same for you as it works for everybody else in the room. Lousy. It doesn't work very well at all for us to move those things by willpower, but instead present them on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and your union with him by which you have been brought from death to life. Let me try and say it this way. We are to weaponize our union with Christ in his death and resurrection in our fight against sin. We are to weaponize our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. So we take the death of Christ, and with the death of Christ, when we are confronted, I'm just going to use this as an illustration in front of me, when we're confronted by the sin, by the temptation of this hand, by the death of Christ, to put that to death, to say, hand, you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. You are no longer to be an instrument, a tool, a weapon in service of unrighteousness, but in service of righteousness. And so by the death of Christ, by the death of Christ, I put to death the deeds of the flesh. I put off the deeds of the flesh. I mortify the deeds of the flesh. And by the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, then we put on, we bring to life, we vivify, we do what we're supposed to do with our hands. Why? That's the purpose. We were created in Christ, in, we were created by God in Christ Jesus, that we may do the good works that he's given us to do. We were formed by him for that purpose, to use these members of ours to do that which is good. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The old word that was usually here is reckon for consider. You have to consider. You have to reckon. You have to count on it to be so. You must consider in your battle with sin not just your willpower in it. That doesn't have very much power to it but to consider the death and resurrection of Christ 
and your union with Christ in that death and resurrection. That's the way we exercise the warfare. And if you forget that's the way that you exercise the warfare, we are sapped, sapped of the strength, of the power, of the resources to go about this battle. And so the command becomes, don't let sin reign. And let me say it this way, don't let it act like it's on the throne. It's not on the throne. Don't let it act like it's on the throne. Don't let your members act like it's on the throne either, because in verse 19, instead we can say, I'm speaking in human terms, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present. I offer it to you, your members, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Your body is sanctified. Your body is being sanctified, and it will be sanctified. Now, we're closing up here. I know it's been long, and I want you to hear this thing again. I don't want any of us to walk away from this under any illusions of present bodily perfection. The redemption of our bodies is not yet complete. And for now, we struggle, Romans 7. For now, we groan, Romans 8. We groan for now, we struggle for now. Ultimately, our victory or victories in the warfare of sanctification are not the thing that will deliver us from this sinful body, this body of death, this sinful flesh. But Jesus' victory does, and our union with him does deliver us from those things. Let me conclude with uh, section three from the Westminster Confession on page eight. In which war? The warfare between the flesh and the spirit. Although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Many of us feel like we are slaves to sin. Many of us feel that way. We're not. We don't know what we would be if we were actually slaves to sin. But we're not. It feels that way. Sometimes the corruption may much prevail, but not in the end. Not in the end. We will be perfected in holiness, in the fear of God, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's accomplished. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Our desire is to walk before you in holiness, and we hear these things, and all of us are well aware of the struggle, and all of us are well aware of the failings which seem to scream at us when we read this passage and insist that this passage cannot be true. And yet, Jesus, you died and you rose again. And by your Spirit, we are united in that 
death and in that life. Help us to walk in newness of life. We pray this in your name. Amen.